Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Thompson, and today we are joined once again by our favorite guest, favorite <laughs> I, with quotation marks I, here. I've made favorite status, <laughs> finally. Well, I, well, we're here with Ray Jewell again, but Ray, today we're going to do something we've, we've never done before. I'm going to bestow upon you a new title, the temporary title of co-host. Co-host. So congratulations on your promotion. Thank you. Is there is there is there a financial uh, you know, benefit to this? <laughs> yeah, right. You you can have all of the candy uh, and the candy jar I just dumped out here in my classroom. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so we're going to be starting here a three part series on the topic of gender roles within the church. We're talking about if we want to throw the big words around complementarianism versus egalitarianism, and so we're going to start today. Uh, this is a subject that we, you and I kind of disagree on a little bit. Uh, kind of. <laughs> you know, we, I think there's a lot of agreement we have. Right. But right. certainly some disagreement, so we're going to get heated and shouting and yelling and screaming and spitting. But we're going to save that for the third right. session. <laughs> so we're going to take three episodes here. And, and the first, we're going to talk here about egalitarianism. And then next week, we're going to talk about complementarianism. And then the third week, Ray and I are going to kind of hash these out, uh, see where our agreements and disagreements are, and see how we can... Uh, go forward with those agreements and disagreements. So today we're talking about egalitarianism, and Ray, you're you're the egalitarian between the two of us. Yes. And so I'm going to do a dangerous thing here, and I'm going to actually give the reins of the show over to you, but I'm going to kind of hold one of them back. Yeah. Just so I can kind of, it, it's like the uh, when you're learning how to drive, and you're you're in that special car that has the brake on the passenger side. Right. right. So I'm going to be on the passenger you're, side you're here with that brake. The teacher of the driver at right. the class. Okay. So you know, because we still have to rein you in from time to time. Yeah. But we have a special guest joining us to talk about this, and I'm going to let you introduce our guest and kind of just jump right in. Okay. Well, Dr. Paul Axton is you. You've spent some time in Japan as a missionary. I'm not. I don't know how many time, how much time, but you've also been a a Bible college professor, and currently you're the uh, brain thrust of organization called Foraging Plowshares, and you do blogs and podcasts. And I know I've got to know you because you taught my daughter and uh, Miranda Steiner, mm-hmm. which which uh, Miranda Steiner was one of Kevin's students. Mm-hmm. Uh, before she came out to where you were teaching. Don't hold that against her, please. Yeah. <laughs> you are, my daughter Anna has just said yesterday that you probably be more egalitarian than I am, so whatever that means, but <laughs> from her perspective, she knows us both pretty well, I guess. And uh, But why don't we start by you uh, explaining to the audience what you mean by that term, egalitarianism. Yeah, maybe. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I and whether I'm the the great expert on this, I don't know. And and maybe even the terminology, you know, this was uh, uh, N.T. Wright has wondered in a British context. You know, if the mm-hmm. if the terminology doesn't some way uh, put us into categories that already are problematic. And so that's you know the the the, the language we immediate, immediately it may be hidden buttons that uh, are there's a misunderstanding. And so what I like to do is I, I think the issue of gender, first of all, is is core. It's front and center to what we mean by salvation. And unfortunately, I think that 
we cannot get gender roles straightened out. In other words, we kind of think, oh, well, let's have this conversation about human gender as if this is a, a subset. But as I see it, it is, in fact, you know, if you go back to Genesis, that I think, first of all, we misread what the image of God is that we bear. So, you know, in the beginning, he creates man, but it is not a singular individual. Let us create him male and female. That is that the image-bearing capacity is a plurality of persons. It is in and through maleness and femaleness. And that will that text is going to be key when Paul talks about Christ in the church, you know, that a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife. He's going to reference the image of Eve being brought to Adam. Uh, as Karl Barth talks about, you know, here is the, the moment in which the fullness of creation, it's like creation uh, with Adam. It's the one point God says this is not good, but the answer to that inadequacy means that there's an that creation is an open-ended you know that that the church itself is going to be the fulfillment of the genderedness and so when we talk about when we talk about it in that way we we're getting the perspective that this pertains this is at the very center of what it means uh, to be in relationship not just to one another in marriage or in, in human families, you know, gender is obviously at the center of that, but it's going to be at the center of what we mean by salvation, that we are the bride of Christ. Once you, once you get put it in that perspective, and then you look, okay, well, what is the fall of man? There is an alienation, and my work has been in describing the nature of this alienation you know i think romans 7 uh is key to that that paul is describing uh an antagonism related to the wall and once you see this once you capture this it is just all encompassing that there is a way of apprehending and understanding everything that he's going to describe as an orientation to the law and it is a kind of oppressive relationship to the other that, you know, when he runs this down in Galatians and talks about the binaries, no longer slave nor free, you know, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, he is describing a, a, an identity uh, that, ex you know, that we lost that in other words that as long as you're doing identity over and against the other i am a man i'm not a woman i'm a jew i'm not a gentile that is the way the world does identity what salvation means is that doing identity through those differences those oppositional you know kind of alienation that that is salvation that reconciliation a it is uh, an overcoming of an entire logic. Once you, once you see that logic is undone and you see what it's replaced by, it's replaced by agape love. And this agape love is a particular thing 
that is worked out in the New Testament. That it is a self-sacrificial love. So, uh, stop me here if I'm just uh, rambling on. No, no, no. You're fine. You're fine. I, because you know, I'm I'm seeing as you're talking, I'm seeing more and more that this whole idea of the church is what God had in mind from the beginning, and because of sin, that got fractured in every every relationship we have our relationship with god with ourselves with our uh, the earth and with each other and with in christ that those walls tumble down as at ephesians it talks about where christ uh, broke down the wall of separation Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah but yeah you're you're doing fine uh, yeah and so i <laughs> so how well let me ask you this I, i'm not supposed to be talking here but i'm could could you describe then in this in this perspective what role the fall played in that? Because we have in, in Genesis three with with the curses on, on the woman, on mm-hmm. the man, on the serpent, we we have some gender issues even there, or or, or role gender role issues mm-hmm. even right there. Yeah, I think, uh, and I take you know what when Jesus or, or Paul or even in the Old Testament when they're going to talk about the human predicament, the the human problem, I assume that it's Genesis 3. I mean, it's obviously there in Romans 7 that that's going to be what is continually referred back to. And so I take, I, I mean, I, the, the, this may sound silly to say that I take it seriously, but I think, in fact, people who, who among fundamentalists, conservatives, uh, ironically, I don't think they actually take that passage as seriously as it should be taken. I see it. Te- I see it standing behind. In other words, this is my re- reading of Romans seven, that when Paul talks about you know the thou shalt that whole what he's doing there is a commentary. I think on Genesis three, and this is you know the whole the ego, the I that he uses some, you know, 20 times in Romans 7, that first appears, if you look at Genesis, you know, when does when is the first time that the I is spoken? Well, it's subsequent to the fall. And by the word, the Greek word I is simply the word ego. Ego, you know, it's the... Uh, the and so when Adam is confronted by God after the fall, he had not spoken in the first person singular. It, it had always been, you know, that that especially after the woman, that there there was not that conversation. And he says, "I ran, I hid, I was afraid." You know, he actually uses the word "I" four times in the first sentence that he speaks. We can already get an an idea that there is a reorganization of human personality. In other words, this has a direct impact upon the human psyche, the human, you know, however you want to say that, the human way of doing identity. And of course, when Paul is going to talk about salvation, he's going to directly address that predicament, both in Romans and Galatians, uh, that I no, it's no longer I, same word, that live, but it's Christ that lives within me. So that mm-hmm. I, what I am, the way in which I'm reading Genesis, 
that the there is a logic, there is an organization to human personality prior to the fall that is lost in the fall. That is represented then in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a closed binary system. It's just as Augustine will refer to it, a circulating system of signs that the good is through the evil, the evil is through the good. That is that, how do you know what the, the one is over and against the other? This is the yin-yang, this is universal, this is also Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, that the dialectic language becomes the binary in and through which it becomes, it becomes foundational. Now this relates directly to gender, but it relates to everything because the way in which we're going to do identity is through difference. In other words, how do we know what the good is? Well, over and against the evil. Mm. What is the evil over and against okay. the good? But of course, that right. is inherently contradictory because if you do not have the good apart from the evil or vice versa, that means that the two categories inhere in one another. And this is there in the yin-yang symbol that, you know, you have the large circle and then it's split and there's a little tiny. Right. Um, so yeah. that, uh, and this is there in Hegel. Hegel recognizes this. Uh, by the way, the, the, you know, Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel gives us a long commentary on Genesis 3. The other person that does this is Jacques Derrida. What they're both describing, Hegel says, you know, as a good Lutheran, he says, oh, we need the fall of man. We need this system because this is the maturity of man. This is the way that we do logic. This is the way that we're able to think. And so Hegel's picture, and I think this is very often, Hegel sounds, you know, when you put it this way, it sounds strange. But I think it's really what he's captured is the way that human knowing functions and it is then in and through this identity through difference this is what people like Jacques Derrida in postmodernity they're taking this apart and what is inherent to this system is violence so this is why I think the gender issue and the issue of violence is they're very much interconnected that is what we would mm. do in complementarianism separate but equal or you know we could or in apartheid, or in uh, na nationalism, or in, you know, a patriarchy, is that in some way we continue this doing identity through difference, that it is a logic. The counter logic is what we have in Christ. It is, it is a holistic, it's a completely different way of knowing, of apprehending, of, of doing truth. And it is peaceable. It is grounded in the love of Christ. Once you get this, once you see, oh, this is everything. This is inclusive of, of literally everything that, that we are as human beings. Then when you begin to talk about the particulars, you can set them in their proper perspective. Right. Yeah, that, you know, I... I uh wrote a little paper on this whole the role of women in the church and and you know you really it's doing the uh 
the topic of disjustice if you start with what Paul wrote to Timothy as uh, the pastor of Ephesus. And that's where, you know, going back to Genesis and working your way through the whole counsel of God is key to my understanding. And I think uh, as I've listened to you this morning, Paul, your understanding of this whole issue, uh, we have to start at the beginning with it and go from there. I think that I think that that's key. And then also when you, you know, when you look at idolatrous religion, I lived, you know, we were in Japan at least 20 years, but it, it is always going to consist it, you know, in, in the old Testament, it is described in terms of gender, in terms of human sexuality, mm-hmm. of course, of a failed sexuality a fa- and maybe, you know, the, the, that when we talk, you know, it, it is, of course, functioning as a kind of metaphor. But the idol, and this was literally true in Japan, is a phallic symbol. That's what's happening in Ezekiel. That the idolaters are pictured as adulterers. But, of course, it's not as if there is a real, you know, that it's an impossible sexual relationship. In the work that I've done in psychoanalysis, this is the way that uh, Jacques Lacan, a prominent French psychoanalyst, has put it. There is no sexual relationship. What he's describing is the impossibility that you encounter in idolatry. That is, you're not going to get these two categories together because the very nature of it is an antagonistic impossibility. You cannot coordinate human, uh, you know, if you think in terms of Paul's language, the ego or the I, the law, the, you know, that those are categories that are constitutive of an identity that we, that that is, that's us, you know, that's not something outside of us. Mm-hmm. And those two things cannot be reconciled. We cannot. And isn't. Okay. Oh, okay. I was, just, I was just going to interject here with with Paul's uh, writing to Timothy in Ephesus, which is the the worldwide center for the uh, cult of Artemis or Diana. There you go. You know that plays in into that uh, setting uh, extremely importantly, in my opinion, anyway. And my studies have shown that where you know that's. You have women coming out of this female-dominated cult, and uh, well, I, I want to make sure religion. we're clear. We're talking about First and Second Timothy here, because right. if we're saying, and, and Timothy is the pastor there at Ephesus, mm-hmm. and so I, I don't want to get our listeners confused, thinking, okay, is he talking about the Book of Ephesians? Or, so right. we're talking about what Paul is saying about women in the church and whatnot mm-hmm. in in those right. books. But that that backdrop is. That historical context is very important to this discussion mm-hmm. because it's really clear that, uh, you know, uh, as you read through Acts and Paul's in Ephesus, there, there's that tension already there, and it, it, it creeps into the church just like Gnosticism creeps into the church a well, lot. Well, we're, we're kind of running out of time, so I want, okay. I, but I do want to, since we're on this topic, since we have what you're, you're laying out as the grand meta narrative so to speak the big picture mm-hmm. so within that big picture how does 
First Timothy 2 fit into this. In verse 12, or verse 11, he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And going back, as you said, to Adam, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. How does that fit within that grand narrative that you that you painted for us? Uh, that, you know, N.T. Wright does a wonderful job, and he gives us a translation of that. And so what he's describing is that you have two cultures coming into conflict. You have the cult of Artemis that they're in which the women would be dominant. Then you have Jewish culture in which women would have no place in the synagogue. And he's trying to negotiate between these two cultures so that if you were doing, if you're going to go with a Jewish understanding, well, women would be excluded. You would go with the cult of Artemis, then women would in fact be the dominant leaders in the church. And so the uh, Wright gives his own uh, definition. He says that lifting up holy hands with no anger or disputing, in the same way the women too should clothe themselves in an appropriate manner, modestly and sensibly. They should not, and so what he's doing in both Corinthians in in Timothy, let's maintain male-female. That is, let's not go androgynous, which was apparently, you know, when you get into Gnosticism, it's going to, there is this uh, tendency. They should not go in elaborate hairstyles. Instead, as is appropriate for women who profess to be godly, they should adorn themselves with good works. They must, not, they must be allowed to study undisturbed in full submission to God. And what Wright is doing there is saying the submission is the mutual subordination, the mutual submission uh, to God. It's not that, and then he goes on, I'm not saying that women should teach men or try to dictate to them. That's the problem. But in the religious setting, women have been dominant in Ephesus and I think also in Corinth and so they should be left undisturbed and then he goes into the role of Adam Adam was created first you see so that and then there's the whole issue of headship and I do believe in the headship of the man but once you've done I uh, you know the, you get the big picture oh well what that means is not a domineering hierarchy it means that here is you know that just as Christ is the means the source well in creation Adam is the source of Eve and in the marriage relationship he is the one who is to be in the role of the servant you know this is what Christ does for the apostles that if you want to be the leader, then you're the one who in some way provides the agape love, and that's precisely the word. And once you... And that's how, that's how he describes it in Ephesians 5. Paul mutual with, subordination, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mutual subordination with the, uh, the husband loving his wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, and then the, the wife respecting the husband and you know that that kind of thing it, it all plays together to again to bring back the kind of relationship that uh, was meant from the beginning i think that's it and once you get the agape aspect 
then the whole, you know, in a sense that when, when we're talking about this issue, we're always thinking power. Who's got the power? Mm. Well, wait a minute. Mm. That's, not, that's not even up on the table here because if you're a Christian, you're no longer relating to people in that sort of, you know, notion that I'm going to be the decision maker, I'm going to call the shots. No, it's that it's subordination that we're all mutually subordinate and we don't domineer, we don't lord it over anyone. Well, we have one lord. We have one person that has the power and that's Jesus and and has given that to the church in his spirit living in us as more, uh, yes, individually, but even more so collectively as the body of Christ. Yes, yeah. So a wrong view of this, we, I'm trying to get to our, our, one of our final segments here about dangers to avoid. We've looked at some scripture, we, we've, we've kind of defined things in a, in a broad way. So do you think a, an improper view here of, uh, I don't know, I'll just say blanket complementarianism, but if we're not looking at this as a subservient relationship or, or a mutually subservient relationship, do you believe that leads to domination and even oppression. I'm afraid that, and, and you know, complementarianism is a perfectly good word. My, and I'm always a little afraid that when people use the term egalitarian, they say, oh, there's no difference. I don't think that's inherent, you know, in, in what is meant, or at least not what I mean by it. But unfortunately, I think that in the way that complementarianism has been defined, uh, that uh, difference has meant some, uh, a kind of, uh, oppression of the one. Hmm. So how does this, in a, in a practical level, how should a proper view of, of gender, how should that affect the church? I think that it... How does, it, what, how does this look like? In real I life? think that it, in, in, in uh, first of all, I, I, we've done this very quickly, but what I've just described is a completely different view of what salvation looks like. I'm afraid as long as we're tied to penal substitution, I think penal substitution, complementarianism, patriarchy, slavery, you know, you can just go right on through, that there is a theology that characterizes the a church, a Christianity, uh, that has proven itself historically again and again to be capable of profound evil. And so I think that the church, to really be the church, has to understand what, it, what this uh, salvation in Christ, that it is arriving at a new understanding of knowing, of loving, of human relationships. So here is the revolution that I'm afraid the evangelicalism, not just evangelicalism, but it has missed out on. That, it, that the church has become co-opted then by the culture and unfortunately just is more of the same. And so what, what is the difference it would make? Oh, when you encounter this Christianity, when you encounter it in person and you encounter real loving relationships, that it, it makes all the difference in the world. Hmm. Well, I think if we had more time, I'd, I'd love to explore that whole idea of penal substitution, because at least to me, I think that is a, one of the, the key components of the gospel. But we'll have to talk about that another time. I, I want to get to our, 
our, our final subject here or recommended resources. Are there any are there any books or articles that you found helpful? I know you've written some that would help someone wanting to learn a little more about this. Well, I would point you to my work, uh, The Psychotheology of Sin and Salvation. I'd point mm-hmm. you to our website. We're at forgingplowshares.org. I, we have a podcast on this in which we've talked about gender roles, and in that podcast we mm-hmm. cover the Timothy passages, the Corinthian passages. And then also I've done uh, uh, several blogs on this. That would be an immediate resource. Of course, there's the Junior Project. Uh, they uh, have a lot of rich resource material uh, that covers this. And we'll make sure we'll have all of those links available on our website. And again, I, I go ahead and check out the uh, what was it? The Forging Plowshares is that the name? Forgingplowshares.org is our website, yeah. and you can find podcasts and blogs that on that on that website. Of course. We only recommend that you check out that podcast when you're finished catching up on all your basic Bible podcasts. <laughs> then you are free to explore, and I, and I encourage you to do so. Well, uh, Dr. Axon, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to, to talk about these issues. I think it's been very helpful, very informative. Thank you. Yes. Thank Glad you, Paul. One last resource I forgot to mention, and that is a, maybe a foundational work on this issue. A Biblical Examination of Women as Leaders in the Community of God, and that is written by none other than the highly esteemed Ray Jewell. Yes, yes. And uh, we're going to make that available on an ebook format, and that'll be free, uh, unless Ray is charging for it. But no, since I'm, I'm, I'm saying no. here. I wrote that 10 years ago, Paul. <laughs> so we're going to make that available to you guys as well. So uh, don't forget, next week we'll be talking about the opposite here, the opposite view, or uh, a different view, complementarianism. And so you don't want to miss that. And then our third program in two weeks, Ray and I will talk about our agreements, disagreements here, and how to how to move forward here. So don't forget to check out our website at www.basicbiblepodcast.org. Check us out on Twitter at Basic Biblecast. So until next week, have a great rest of your week. Mm-hmm.